This episode contains explicit content. Please proceed with caution. You're listening to the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kalatni. Welcome back, everyone. We've got a really great show for you this week. As usual, we're going to start by going over this week's love and sex-related headlines. We're also going to share an interview I had with Jillian Keenan, who just came out with a fascinating book called Sex with Shakespeare, which explores Keenan's spanking fetish and how reading Shakespeare as erotica came to her rescue while she was learning to accept and explore her own sexuality. I cannot wait for that. We're also going to talk about some of the listener questions that we got, including one from a man who wants to know why he doesn't like cuddling after sex. Mm. But first, I have some really exciting news for you, Karina. You do? Yeah. This morning, my phone finally stopped autocorrecting dick to doc. This sounds like the start of a strange nursery rhyme. I mean, yes, but also, no, it's a really big deal. It was so annoying. I am really happy for you because I can only imagine how frequently you type the word dick into your phone. Yeah, it's a lot. I expect to count by next week, like a like a rough count. <laughs> um, in the meantime, let's get into this week's headlines. So our first story is about a new study that confirms the continued existence of a dangerous myth. Heterosexual men believe that women who are more attractive by conventional standards are less likely to have STIs, which makes men less likely to use protection. Hmm. What do you think about that, Karina? I think what was also interesting was that it was not just straight dudes. So other smaller studies have mimicked these results in gay men and heterosexual women. It makes sense, too. I I remember these ads in the early 90s. They were on MTV and they would be like, you can't tell who has HIV just by By looking looking at at them. them. Yeah. And I always thought about that. And I think people do think that they think, oh, that person like is so beautiful or is so well dressed or all these things like they can't have an STI. Right. And obviously that's not true. Right. No, there's this notion of like a look of dirtiness or like a look of unkemptness or, somehow. Or of sickness. Right. Exactly. Right. When. As we know, so many STDs are non-presenting, not going to show up like on the genitals or anywhere else. You don't even know you have it. Correct. So basically you have to use protection. Yes. And this is very bad timing seeing as the CDC just said that STI rates are on the rise in the United States. And the other thing about that, too, is that we are having more and more strains of STIs that don't respond to antibiotics. Right. There's like that super gonorrhea now that they don't know what to do about it. Right. It's mostly been in the UK so far, but it's here now, too. And it's like, great, we can't cure gonorrhea anymore. That's going to be a big issue. So outside of a committed relationship where both people have been tested six months after their last partner. Right. You are putting yourself at risk is what it comes down to. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is there's a new drug prep for people who don't want to get HIV. And it's really effective. But that doesn't protect against all those other things. Right. So you really should be using protection if you're going to have sex with people that you don't know. Agreed. Yeah. Our next story is on the sex doll market in China, which has been valued at no less than 100 billion yuan. That is incredible. That is a huge number. And it makes sense because in China, because of the one-child policy, men outnumber women by about 30 million, which makes the Chinese market particularly lucrative for sex and companion doll makers. And did you see, too, I guess there was a tech startup in China that even offered the sex dolls to single male employees as an end-of-the-year holiday perk. So, like, you get your bonus and you <laughs> Plus get... Plus HR in the yeah, United States, right? Exactly. Here is your sex doll. Oh, my gosh. Happy holidays. 
So what's interesting to me about this is that we've looked into sex dolls before and found that while they have great prospects for the future, the technology available now is pretty lacking. So like there's, you know, the whole notion of the uncanny valley and like, you know, being able to sort of tell that something is human or not human. And it's not there yet. So I guess it's just a total suspension of disbelief or. Yeah, because it seems like, too, when you watch the documentaries about people who have sex dolls now and who are interested in them. They don't seem like just the average consumer. Right. It doesn't seem like people are spending this kind of money because they're $5,000, $7,000. You have to be pretty dedicated and pretty interested in that sort of lifestyle or community. So the fact that there are so many people in China who are, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, the article that we were reading on this also said that a lot of people don't necessarily use the dolls for sex but use them as companions. One man even talks about how he pretends that the doll is a daughter. And, and has that relationship with it as opposed to anything sexual. And how do you feel about that? <sighs> I go back and forth because I don't know if you saw the movie Her. And yeah. it was the same idea that it's in the future humans will sort of have relationships with artificial intelligence. Right. And I know a lot of my friends were really outraged by that and thought it was awful. But in my head, I was kind of like, I don't know. Is this a new way of conceptualizing our relationships? Is it a bad thing? I don't know. I really am pushed and pulled by it. Yeah. Again, I think in the future, it might make more sense. I think right now, it's just such a divergence. Like, obviously, in the movie Her, right. you really feel like there's another person, and you're hearing this voice, right. and they're getting to know you, and they're learning things about you, and this relationship is developing, versus just this doll that comes programmed to say a certain number of things. Yeah. And I think that lack of technology is what makes me... Concerned isn't the right word, but it makes me think, you know, a little bit more suspicious of maybe the people who are engaging with this in terms of, like, you're not getting the same thing out of it. And if you're right. fine with it, that's fine. But, but it's not like a replacement for that type of interaction. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see where we are maybe in 10 years or 20 years and how different it's going to be. So here's some exciting news. The Supreme Court has rejected a lower court's ruling that would have allowed states to restrict abortions through cumbersome and unnecessary restrictions. Yeah, the Texas law that was just struck down required physicians who performed abortions to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of the clinic. Right. And that law would have made abortions more difficult for women, especially women in rural areas and areas of lower socioeconomics. So, again, there was no point to the law. It was just about making things more difficult. And it was just the pro-life or anti-choice movement, as I like to call them, trying to to make it more difficult for women to get abortions. Right. And in 2016, we're still at a place where (sighs) we want to try and police women's bodies and tell them that these politicians know better about their health than they do or that their doctors doctors do. do. Here's what always blows my mind consistently. We know that making abortions illegal or more difficult Mm -hmm. to obtain does not in any way prevent women from getting abortions. It doesn't reduce the amount of abortions that are happening. It just leads to women getting more unsafe and unregulated abortions. So even if you believe in your truest and dearest heart that life begins at conception, Mm -hmm. and that's what you think, armed with that information, why would you try and make it? more difficult. Right. You're just putting a woman's life at risk. Yeah. It's the same thing too with abstinence-only sex ed, right? right? It's the, the idea that if we don't talk about it, if we say that this can't happen, no one's going to have sex. Well, we know how well that's worked out. Right. People still have sex, so why not make them safe? And the same thing here. It's why not make people as safe as possible if, if this has to be something that they have to choose. The other thing too is I don't know of any women, of all the women I know who've had abortions, have ever just done it nonchalantly or like Ugh. flippantly and like this is just a fun thing they're going to do on a Wednesday afternoon. It's right. usually an agonizing decision no matter why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't feel like that that comes up enough in the conversations. No, I think there's this notion that's popularized by the anti-choice movement of people using it as an alternative to birth control, which is insane because as if it's like, you know what? No, I have access to contraception, but I'm not going to use it. Instead, I'm going to just, you know, have an abortion as if that isn't a, you know, complicated and intense and laborious and emotional procedure. Totally. And potentially expensive procedure for, for women who don't have the funds to do it. Right. So... Yay, Supreme Court. Yay. Good work. In similar news, technology for the win here, a slew of new apps are allowing women to receive prescription contraceptives without going to the doctor. Yeah, it's awesome. So women in more isolated areas or rural areas can obtain birth control, which means more women are getting birth control, which leads to fewer unwanted pregnancies. Yay. And luckily, this has gone under the radar of the normal crew that would come out (laughs) and protest it very intensely. It also follows a trend of birth control without a doctor's visit that's happening in states like Oregon, where pharmacists can now prescribe directly to patients. Very cool. It's hugely important. And again, there's really no reason that hormonal contraceptions aren't sold over the counter or available. The, The risks that are aligned with them aren't any higher than the types of things you can just go pick up at CVS. Exactly. And again, it's about letting people make decisions about their own lives, about family planning, about deciding when they want to get pregnant and when they don't, which when they don't get pregnant because they didn't want to, there are less costs for everybody. Right. You know what I mean? It's just it's just smart. And just to give listeners an indication, a lot of these apps and sites are saying they are overwhelmed by the number of traffic and users that they are receiving right. since starting these services because it is so desperately needed. The demand is there. Yeah. Definitely. Well, here's something totally different, Karina. There's a new cafe in Switzerland, aptly named Sexpresso, (laughs) that allows men to order their coffee from a menu and then choose a prostitute off of an iPad display. So you get your coffee and your fellatio. (laughs) The cafe, though, offers exclusively oral sex to exclusively heterosexual men. Right. And it's 42 euros for the coffee and the blowjob. So I love this idea. (laughs) But I think that we need to get everyone involved. So we should have, you know, women should be able to have services rendered to them. We should have queer people involved, too. But this is I love this idea. I love the idea of making sex sort of more like an everyday thing. And it's easy for people to go get, especially because the idea behind prostitution or sex work, I think, for a lot of people, too, is that there are a lot of people who don't get sex normally for whatever reason. Maybe they are differently abled or maybe they are overweight or maybe they're older or maybe they just don't have time to do the dance that's involved trying to find a partner, why shouldn't they be able to have sex? That being said, it is 42 euros or will be 42 euros for both coffee and the blowjob that you will receive, which to me, like, I've been to Europe and gotten a coffee for like 12 euros. So I'm like, this just doesn't seem high enough. If we're going to allow (laughs) prostitution, it needs to be very well regulated, and those yeah. partaking in it need to be well paid for their Well, they services. said you were done in like 15 minutes, so it's not like you're having an extended interaction with them, which makes me wonder, you know, when you think about the economy of sex, like how much should a blowjob cost? And we don't talk about that because I don't think that's on our minds enough, but when you start to think about it, like who should be charging what and for how long and all these, it's really an interesting kind of idea of economics. Okay, I'm interested to hear what all of our listeners think here. So if you're listening, both on the performing and the receiving ends of a blowjob and the economics of sex, what is the valuation of a blowjob in your mind? Yeah, or oral sex in general. Right, exactly. We're using blowjob just sort of to cover all bases. But oral sex for a man, a woman, or gender nonconforming person, how much did you charge? 
How much did you pay? What are your thoughts? Send us an email. Love and sex podcast at HuffingtonPost.com. We would love to hear. Definitely. We should also note finally that in Switzerland, uh, sex work is legal. Right. But right. it's it's well regulated and you have to abide by all these different regulations and rules. So it's not just like anybody can open this cafe. Anybody can just do this, which also makes it safer for people because then you're having sex workers get tested more often. They don't have to operate in the shadows. They aren't using pimps probably, or at least not the kind of pimps that we think of. So it's good. It's good for everybody. Much like abortion regulated and illegal, sex work is safer for everybody. Yes. The theme just, just coming through coming all coming together. These. Yeah. Now we're going to take a quick pause, but stick around. In a minute, we're going to share an interview Karina did with Jillian Keenan, author of a new book called Sex with Shakespeare. And we're going to answer more questions from you, our listeners. Don't miss it. Before we get back to the show, have you found Love and Sex on iTunes? iTunes is one of the best places for people to discover our podcast. So please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and give us a review to let us know what you think. Each time we get a new reviewer rating, our podcast climbs the rankings, which helps other people discover our show and spread sex positivity throughout the land. And if you've already found us on iTunes, why not tell a friend to listen? Get on that. But in the meantime, let's get back to the show. Now we're going to share Karina's interview with Sex with Shakespeare author Jillian Keenan. I don't use the word obsessed casually. Plenty of people enjoy an occasional erotic swat, but that is not me. It would not be accurate to say that spankings turn me on or that I enjoy being spanked. Those phrases don't describe obsession. What would be accurate is to say that all day, every day, for my entire life, I've thought about spankings. Spanking is not part of my sex life. Spanking is my sex life. To be honest, I could almost drop the word sex from that sentence. My fetish is my sexual orientation, or maybe just my orientation. It isn't something I chose, or an experimental phase, or a preference, or a trend that I opted into. It's the core of my sexuality, and an innate, unchosen, and lifelong center of my identity. My phone is saturated with pictures of wounded butts, not only of my own, but photos of my friends' bottoms too. Every morning I wake up to dozens of text messages in our group chat, where my fetishist friends and I swap photos and stories about our adventures in gluteal perversion. If I had to give up sex, all kinds of sex, or spanking, I'd flush sex like a drug smuggler ditching his stash in an airport bathroom. My fetish isn't something I do, it's something I am. So sex and Shakespeare, two topics that certainly overlap but aren't often thought of in the same vein, yet you've written over 300 pages <laughs> explaining why, for you at least, they're so deeply intertwined. For those who haven't had the opportunity to read or, or hear about the book yet, can you provide a little insight as to why? Absolutely. Um, this book is about how Shakespeare helped me come to terms with my lifelong innate and unchosen spanking fetish. Absolutely. So in the book, you dissect Shakespeare's plays through the lenses of sex and power. Has the literary community reacted? What has the response been like? So far, the responses I've gotten from uh, Shakespearean academics, these yeah. literary superstars that I've admired for years, has been overwhelmingly supportive and positive. So I've been really gratified by that because, of course, I am not a PhD. Uh, I tell people that I'm just a Shakespeare super fan. Um, so to get uh, the you know wonderful endorsements and words of encouragement from the academic community that I have um, has been really gratifying. So 
you write that your spanking fetish is your sexual orientation. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? You know, I think it goes back to those three words I dropped before, uh, innate, lifelong, and unchosen. Um, I think a lot of people perceive kink as a side dish to sex, something that adults discover later in life and use it to spice things up in the bedroom. And while that's certainly sometimes true, um, that's not the case for me at all. Uh, My earliest memories of fetishism date back to when I was three or four years old. It really does exist that fundamentally and that early in life. Um, The best explanation I can offer is that spanking occupies the place in my life that sex occupies in most people's lives. Um, Spanking is what I I fantasized about my whole life. Uh, when I saw a spanking reference in a TV show or a movie or a comic, that's what I responded to. Um, and references to sex sort of went right over my head. I, I didn't react at all. Um, when I first got the internet, I wasn't doing internet searches for sex-related terms. Uh, I was doing internet searches for words like spanking and thrashing and punishment. So when I call it my sexual orientation, uh, I'm just trying to underline the fundamental nature of the paraphilia we're talking about here. Well, you talk about it really confidently now and and really with confidence in the book. What's clear in the book is that you didn't come to embrace or even accept your spanking fetish very easily. It was definitely a journey for you. In one particular passage you wrote, Wasn't I a feminist and a pacifist too? How could I fantasize about scenarios and interactions that were, I feared, eroticized domestic violence? I can't tell you how many of our female listeners Uh, have written in with a similar sense of horror surrounding their own BDSM-related fetishes or inclinations. How would you advise others to try and reconcile this? Yeah, I can relate to that dilemma a lot because it's not even as if I fantasize about rough sex, which is what usually uh, people imagine when they think of BDSM. I really just fantasize about being beaten. That's it. There's no sex uh, involved. Um, But it is, of course, my sexuality. And this was very stressful for me, um, not only as a feminist, but also as someone who believes in nonviolence and all of these wonderful positive qualities. I would say that I moved past that dilemma um, when I started to think in more interesting ways about consent and non-consent. And... um, Obviously, uh, any spankings I receive are consensual. But uh, with specific regards to the question of feminism, I did turn my eye critically onto feminist discourse as a whole um, in the sense that I think that feminism needs to incorporate into its national dialogue more interesting conversations about the non-consensual things we do to children. I think that beating children is a seed and potent fertilizer of rape culture, and no one says this. When we raise children in a country where it is not only legal, but culturally encouraged to hold them down and do non-consensual things to their bodies while they scream, of course we sometimes raise adults who think it's okay for one person to hold another person down and do non-consensual things to their body while they scream. So when I realized that there was this massive hole, in my opinion, in um, feminist discourse around consent, I started to think, wait, feminism, uh, and and of course, there's not only one feminism, there are many feminists and many waves and yada, yada, yada. But you understand I'm talking sort of about like 
More broadly. More broadly. Mm -hmm. I decided that this ideology as a whole is not in a position to criticize me and my consensual behavior when it um, has so far had very little to say about non-consensual behavior that is culturally condoned and legal in this country. So when I start to hear uh, more great feminist thinkers who I admire so much um, turn their attention on child abuse culture in this country, then if they want to you know, nitpick my sexual orientation, we can have that conversation. Absolutely. In the book, you talk about the abuse that you experienced as a child um, from your mom, and you talk about your first partner and how he also experienced abuse. And I know a lot of people um, incorrectly believe that BDSM and those qualities tend to stem from abuse. So what would you have to say to somebody who was of that opinion? I think the argument that fetishism is caused by childhood trauma is uh, the BDSM equivalent of the four former theory that homosexuality is caused by absent fathers and overbearing mothers. Uh, Both of those theories are just a little too simple for me. I don't think you can reduce human sexuality to something that can fit on a bumper sticker. Um, And I will say that um, since I have outed myself as a fetishist, gotten involved in the fetish community. I have a lot of friends now who are spanking fetishists like me. Um, I've discovered that there are huge numbers of fetishists who, just like me, looked up the word spanking in the dictionary compulsively as children, watched the same movies and TV shows that I did, um, but were never spanked as children. Not ever. And I know that some psychoanalytic traditionalists would say, oh, well, they, they were. They just don't remember it. It happened in infancy and was so traumatic that they repressed it. But no, in some cases, people can know whether they were ever spanked as children from asking their older siblings or seeing how their parents treated their younger siblings. Some fetishists can know with certainty that that never happened to them. So anecdotally, at least, fetishism is definitely not caused by childhood trauma. But at a certain point, um, I think the the question of causality is um, rather irrelevant. The bottom line is that fetishism is healthy and natural and that it is possible to have uh, healthy and loving and rewarding relationships that um, incorporate A fetish. So in the book, you talk about coming out as a fetishist to your then fiancé, how – who is here with us in the studio? Hello. (laughs) Um, How would you advise other people who have – are in loving relationships but have these fetishes that they just have not been able to come out about? And how would you advise them to do that or to at least broach those initial conversations? Yeah, that is a great question. Thank you for asking it. In 2012, when I outed myself in the New York Times and in doing so outed myself to uh, my then fiance, I thought that the hard part was over. I thought, okay, I've done this now. I've outed myself. This is great. Now we can move forward. We're done. That was absolutely not even close to true. Coming out to David was only the very small first step in a process that would then take years and years and years and is still ongoing. So I I think that I would say first to anyone who wants to reveal a paraphilia or a fetish with a partner, the first thing is don't expect it to just take one step. Um, At one point, I wrote that coming out of the closet for any sexual identity isn't quite the right expression because coming out is never a one-step process. It's always a multi-step process. So I would say that uh, 
just be prepared for many more steps uh, after you take that first one. Absolutely. All right. So now for some fun questions. In your analysis, what is the most sexually charged Shakespearean play and why? Ooh, I find Twelfth Night extremely erotic uh, because, as I wrote in the book, I have a preference for um, spanking erotica that is one man spanking another man. And usually in my favorite scenarios, these two men are not in a romantic relationship. It's entirely platonic. They usually are not biologically related, but they have some kind of mentor-type relationship. And in Twelfth Night, Viola disguises herself as a man, Cesario, and becomes a servant to Orsino. So uh, between Orsino and Cesario, we have this fantastic hierarchical male-male unrelated platonic dynamic. Um, At one point, he scolds her. Uh, So I personally find that play very sexy. But my goodness, I mean, all of Shakespeare's plays are just so sexual. And it made this book a real uh, joy and pleasure to write. Do you think that Shakespeare was a literary device to explore your spanking fetish, or do you think that you would have been able to understand and embrace your fetish without the help of his plays and his characters? Oh, interesting. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine my life without either of these two obsessions. Right. I've been obsessed with spanking my whole life. I've been obsessed with Shakespeare my whole life. So it kind of makes sense that the two eventually mix together in my head. I think that without Shakespeare in my life, I would have eventually come to terms with my sexual orientation. But I think it might have taken longer. I really do. Because the bottom line is that everyone agrees that Shakespeare was this masterful chronicler of the human experience, that you know every aspect of humanity can be found in his plays. And there was this one moment in my life when I thought I found someone like me in his plays. And that was the first time... I thought that if Shakespeare made space for someone like me in his world, then maybe I wasn't as unnatural as I had always feared I was. Thank you so much, Jillian Keenan, author of Sex with Shakespeare. Here's much to do with pain, but more with love, a memoir on sale now. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming. Now it's one of our favorite parts of the show. Questions from you guys. Here's our first listener question. I love my fiance and we both enjoy the sex we have. But after I get her off and then she gives me my quote unquote little death, she wants to cuddle. But I don't even feel any kind of attraction for her for 15 to 30 minutes. And I feel sort of weird cuddling with her naked body against mine. Does this have something to do with the refractory period in males? I love cuddling with her on snowy nights with hot chocolate nearby for hours, but just not after sex. What's going on? Well, I think let's start by the good things that are in this question. Yes. Number one, I love that he gets her off first. Yep. Number two, I love that he loves to cuddle in general. Yes. Um, I think when it comes to why he doesn't want to cuddle after sex, Mm -hmm. you and I are not medical experts. No, we are not. But we could do a little research, Mm -hmm. and I feel like we are no— less qualified than the other, you know, bozos who are on the internet giving people advice. Hopefully a little more qualified than the other bozos. (laughs) I hope so too. But so I did a little research and I found someone who said that the reason is because women release um, oxytocin, which is a hormone. It's called the love hormone. I guess it's it's also released during pregnancy and birth. And it bonds a woman to a baby. 
but it also is released during sex. And mm-hmm. so um, she feels these feelings of bonding, mm-hmm. whereas men apparently don't release oxytocin in the same ways that women do. So this advice columnist said, ladies, just relax. Your man simply just doesn't have the same physiological reaction to sex. And she said, he doesn't need to bond any further. He simply doesn't feel empathy to hold you in his arms and listen to your innermost thoughts. And he definitely doesn't want to share his. <laughs> yeah, what are your Sorry, thoughts on I that, just, Karina? I just threw up, guys. <laughs> I apologize. Um, my thoughts are that's really, really grade A bullshit. I'm sure that there are some chemical, you know, reactions going on there, but I'm hesitant to sort of fall into gender roles Mm -hmm. because I feel like that's more of a construction than it is something that you are born with. I also know plenty of women that don't want to cuddle after sex. So like in my head, I'm like, that just can't be right because I know a lot of women that don't want to cuddle after sex. And I have I have multiple guy friends who have been like, why doesn't she want to cuddle after sex? Like, I just want to lay there. She wants, she's like ready, wants to go in the shower and then like go on a jog. And so anecdotally, at least, I can just say that that's absolutely incorrect. Yeah. I think that, you know, this this listener should sort of reinvestigate or interrogate why they're feeling it. Right. But also, I'm not so sure that that is a bad thing. Right. Especially if he is cuddling with her mm-hmm. at other times, is into it as well. She might not like it, and maybe they have to have that conversation. Right. Um, and maybe he can find a way to sort of meet her in the middle. Right. But I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think this is the end of the world. No. You know, I think that it's definitely something that you should talk about. Yeah. But I don't think anyone should do something that they're not feeling comfortable with, including right. cuddling. Cuddling. So I think it's okay to say, like, Hey, I love cuddling with you. I love being intimate with you in that way. But when it happens right after sex, it's really uncomfortable for me. And I don't know why that is. And I don't want you to feel like I'm not attracted to you or like, you know, one and done or anything like that. So let's talk about it. Yeah. I think it'll be okay. Yeah, you're good. You are getting your girl off and you love cuddling. So I think. You're miles ahead of so many other people. Exactly. You're evolved. You're evolved. Here is our second question. The listener says, a few weeks ago, there was some outrage about a tote bag a company did. I forget who it was, but they apparently used the word ally to represent the A in LGBTQA. And people were irate because A should stand for asexual or aromantic. I've only heard the A being ally before. Obviously, there's no central committee that approves these things, but what's the current accepted acronym and what does it stand for? Also... I really don't want to sound stupid, but here goes. What's the difference between transgender and transsexual? And do we just not use transsexual anymore? These are great questions. Great questions. And really fair questions. And asked in such a smart, eloquent way. Also, like an example of ask the question. Like ask the question because that is much better than just not knowing and being And do it respectfully. So there are a ton of terms and acronyms. There's LGBT, which I think everyone knows. Lesbian, gay bisexual, transgender. That's most commonly used, but it leaves out a lot of people. So the A often is for asexual. Mm -hmm. Um, The the I can be for intersex. Mm -hmm. Um, People sometimes put a Q on there for queer, for questioning. I've seen some, there's something called quilt bag, so the U would stand for undecided. Um, The G sometimes can be genderqueer. So you can keep adding them forever. None of them are right. None of them are wrong. Personally, here at HuffPost, we use queer. Right. Because queer is an umbrella term that can sort of 
capture everybody in the community. And this is why I think there's value in queer because yeah. it is such a revolving thing. And even people who are well-intentioned can, you know, say ally and then a community gets upset. And right. you know what? We're all learning right now. 100%. Because everyone is coming out of the closet in a lot of ways and whole communities are coming out of the closet that weren't discussed or accepted before. Yep. That doesn't make it okay to, you know, dismiss or forget someone. But like, I personally identify as queer. I think you identify as queer. Yep. I just, I think it might be a little bit easier and a little bit safer. Yeah. And that being said, though, a lot of people have trouble with that word. Right. Because it has been used as a slur in the past. Um, so some people really don't want to identify with it. Right. Which is also, that's your thing. Totally fine. You do whatever feels right for you. But I think um, I think the future is here, and I think we're going to be using queer a lot more. Now, in terms of transgender versus transsexual, transsexual is usually used to refer to a person who has medically or hormonally transitioned um, from one end of the binary to the other. So was identified male at birth and transitioned to live as a, as a female mm-hmm. or the other way. Um, transgender is an umbrella term, kind of like queer. Mm-hmm. Lots of different people and lots of different identities can fall under that. So you can be tra- a transsexual or you could be gender queer. You could be gender fluid. Um, you could be non-binary. So transgender is more of an umbrella term. I think most people today don't use transsexual anymore. Uh, they would use transgender just to identify in general. But again, if you are a trans person and you think that transsexual speaks to the way that you live your life or the way that you think about who you are, use transsexual. Mm-hmm. I always say that I don't get to choose what words you get to use about yourself. Right. I can say that I think other people, if they aren't in that community, maybe shouldn't be using those words. Mm-hmm. But I think if you want to use that word, then you should. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds fair to me. Enough said. That's it for this week's episode of the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. We want to thank our guest, Jillian Keenan. We want to thank our editor and our producer, Nick Offenberg. And we want to thank you guys for listening, especially those of you who wrote in. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to subscribe to Love and Sex on iTunes and reach out if you have a story for us or a question. Our email is Podcast at HuffingtonPost.com. We'll be back with a new episode in just two weeks. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.